Welcome to the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. I'm here to welcome you into the world of orgasmic living by hosting experts to discuss orgasmic topics such as nutrition, spirituality, personal development, sexuality, and much more. Here, we will offer lifestyle lessons that can help you lead a fulfilling, joyous, and orgasmic lifestyle. I'm your guide, Venus O'Hara. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara. In episode six, we'll be interviewing Hallie Lieberman, sex historian and author of Buzz, a stimulating history of the sex toy. Then I'll be discussing the book I'm reading now, which is Calling in the One by Catherine Woodward Thomas. And finally, we'll be experiencing a guided meditation with affirmations for orgasms. But first, let's talk about sex toys. I've been a sex toy reviewer since 2013. Eight years. I can't believe how much sex toys have changed and evolved in that time. It wasn't my intention to become a sex toy reviewer. It all happened organically and orgasmically. At the time, I was writing for many Spanish media outlets, writing about sex in El País, which is Spain's biggest newspaper, and some magazines such as GQ, Playboy, and some more. I was hailed as Spain's most influential sex blogger, which was a bit crazy for me. And because of my prolific position, I started to receive sex toys for free, which sounds amazing. But the sex toys I was receiving were not as good as my favorite one, which which was a gift from a friend. And I just kept using it all the time. I was obsessed with this one single toy. And yeah, so it kind of, um, even though I, I didn't really appreciate all the sex toys that I was receiving back then, if I'm, if I'm totally honest. And uh, in parallel, a sex shop from Spain contacted me about sponsored reviews. And I put two and two together. Well, it was actually sponsored reviews on my own personal website, which was actually quite abandoned at the time. Because once I started to get work in the media, I didn't really update my own personal blog very often. And that blog was created in 2009. So I thought, hmm, I put two and two together and I started to actually... Uh, produce sex toy reviews in Spanish for a sex shop here in Spain. And it's kind of crazy how that has become my main source of income these days. It all kind of, it got, it got kind of it developed quite quickly, really. At first I was writing reviews for a shop. And then after that, I got in contact with some brands and distributors and I started making content in English as well as making content in English and Spanish. And then I started my YouTube channel in 2014, 2015, and I started making video reviews. And then it just got really big. And now I don't really work with um, shops at all in Spain. I don't do anything in Spanish now for several years. And it's gone completely international. 
And most of my traffic is actually from California and then from the UK and Germany. So it's really, it's really changed a lot. Sex toys has kind of opened me up to a more, a more global market. And now I've actually accumulated 700 sex toys, which sounds very tiring. <laughs> but actually I do kind of um, make sure that my orgasms now are all work-related. Obviously I'm single, so yeah, all my orgasms are work-related. I don't really have any orgasms that are not related to reviews. Now very rarely repeated toys. I do have quite a lot of work, lots of boxes here, incoming trays, literally incoming, and there's lots to do. And Testing a toy for work is not really the same as doing it for pleasure. For example, I have to use it many ways. For example, if it's a an app controlled toy, then I'll use it manually. I'll use it with an app and perhaps with a partner as well when I've been in a in a couple. And I'm kind of like looking at it with a more anal analytic brain than just thinking about having an orgasm. I really have to kind of see everything it does. But I do enjoy it a lot. And also my own sexuality has evolved a lot thanks to this job because when I started my sex toy journey, I used to use the rabbits quite a lot, which was amazing. It was um, used to provide dual stimulation to the clitoris and the vagina, maybe G-spot, depending on how curved it was. And I used to think that that was the only way that I could have an orgasm. And this happens to many people. They find a tried and tested way and they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again just because it works. But then one day my rabbit vibrator broke on me. Oh my God. And it was actually a blessing in disguise because before that moment I had other sex toys which were like bullets or clitoral stimulators which were completely external and I just didn't it, they just didn't really connect with me at the time. I thought, oh I can't have an orgasm with this even though I really did try. But then when my primary sex toy was broken. I had no choice. So I had no backup. So I actually had to use these other toys that I that I had. And then I kind of like developed some of my own techniques, which are more about my own erotic triggers in my head. And now, thankfully, after all the experience of different sex toys, almost any sex toy can can give me an orgasm. So I realize what's the, mo the most important thing is the, is the mind-body connection. And then the toy is kind of just a a tool in the end just to help make that connection a bit more, well, to make it orgasmic, I suppose. And now, of course, we have many different types of toys. It's not just about vibration anymore. There are also clitoral sucking toys. There are tapping toys, thrusting toys. And uh, one of the m big changes that I have noticed ever since I started in 2013 is that thankfully there are no more battery operated toys because that was quite scandalous. I remember the clocks and the remote controls, it was always the same time on the clock at my house. And I, used to, I did used to spend far too much money on batteries. It was scandalous and not very um, environmentally friendly. But yes, yeah, so that's my journey of sex toys. And I'm very excited to speak to Hallie Lieberman later today because I did think I knew a lot about sex toys, obviously through my own experience and from watching the film Hysteria. But when I read her book, Buzz, A Stimulating History of the Sex Toy, I realized there were so many things that I didn't know and they really, really blew my mind. Now it's time for this episode's interview. I'm going to be speaking to Hallie Lieberman, a sex toy historian and author of Buzz, a stimulating history of the sex toy.
Hallie Lieberman, thank you so much for joining me on the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I was sent you a book, Buzz, a stimulating history of the sex toy in 2017, because I wrote an article for The Guardian about my career as a sex toy tester. And then it was on my shelf for three years. I didn't actually read it <laughs> until uh, lockdown, and I couldn't believe like how incredible it was. It's a real treasure, and especially... For me, working in this industry, I can't believe there's so many things that I didn't know of. It's really amazing. So I wanted to um, ask you, what drew you to the history of sex toys? Were you into history first or sex toys? How did it happen? So it was definitely sex toys first. And as I talk about in my book, um, I was like 11 years old uh, when I was first like introduced to sex toys uh, when I was on vacation with my parents in the Florida Keys. And we were at this hotel that had a resident dolphin, which was uh, amazing. But anyway, so I, uh, I I was rifling through the drawers in the hotel, as I usually do, looking for anything like you know a Bible or anything like that. I opened one up, found this uh, phallic thing in a zipper container, opened it up, took it out and said, mom, I found a pencil sharpener. And she said, um, she has a really high pitched voice, but anyway, um, yeah. And I, and she didn't, I was like, well, what is it if it's not a pencil sharpener? And she did not tell me what it was. And somehow later I found out what it was, but I like knew that thing had power. My mom was so upset about me touching it. So that kind of like was my first intro into it. And then um, yeah, it went from there. Fantastic. And um, your, your, the book is so well researched. There's over, over 50 pages of the bibliography and end notes. How long did it take you to write? Well, well, it was my dissertation. So it probably took me like five years or something like researching or six years researching and writing all across the country and in England as well. Um, you know, I went to as many archives as I could. That's amazing. I can't believe there's so much information in it. And um, I thought I knew a lot about sex toys. I've been a reviewer since 2013. I have 700 sex toys in my possession and now I'm a designer. I've also seen the film Hysteria. You know, you think you know a lot after all of that. When I was reading your book, there were so many things that I realized I didn't know and, and some things that really surprised me. For example, the things that really surprised me, uh, one of them was, that I don't know if I remember correctly, strap-ons were initially for married couples. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And that surprised me as well. Because when we think of strap-ons today, I mean, what do you think about? When you Lesbian think of sex, I suppose, or pegging. Exactly. Those are the two things that come to mind, lesbian sex or pegging, and those are sort of not as mainstream as heterosexual intercourse, although they should be. Um, but yeah, strap-ons were initially for impotent men. This was pre-Viagra, and so we're talking about the 1950s, 1960s. Um, if a man couldn't get a heart on, what would they do? Well, one of the things they would do is use a hollow. That was the difference between a lot of strap-on say, hollow strap-on penis. And that was a boon for sex toy companies because in the U.S. at least, it was illegal to sell sex toys. So if, but you get around that, if you were selling them for heterosexual sex with married couples, and that's why we call them marital aids. 
And so they came with, and the the people who made them, one of the women who helped work on them, uh, riveted planes during World War II. So that's why they had the rivets, like with the straps. Um, But a lot of people would buy them, and of course use them to masturbate, but our government was afraid of women masturbating. So if you sold them for heterosexual sex, then they were less threatening because that's where women were supposed to get sexual pleasure. Um, and if women, you know, took them, took the straps off, well, they didn't know about that. They were selling them for the right uh, purposes. Yeah, that's incredible. That really, really surprised me. Another thing that really surprised me was that the feminist movement wasn't very concerned about sex toys or orgasm. That's something that very that stuck out a lot for me. Yeah, well, there was a branch that was the mainstream, but you're right, the mainstream feminist movement, like Betty Friedan, who said like a thousand vibrators wouldn't um, change the course of feminism and stuff. There were there were people who fought against it. So the mainstream movement was like, let's, you know, uh, boardroom, not bedroom. Let's get political rights. And you see over and over again with movements where it's like, okay, we need to get other kinds of rights and sexual rights and reproductive uh you know, anything with sexual pleasure, those rights are put on the back burner. But yeah, I mean, you had uh, Betty Dodson, who was at these consciousness raising groups saying, what about orgasm? Women are having orgasms. This needs to be corrected, you know, and people are like, you know, shut up. Like, why are you, people are going to make fun of us. Um, so the the pioneers of sex toys were really fighting against not only the general society, but against people within the subculture they were in as well because i guess sex wasn't really seen as something for women I, even even by the women themselves that's quite curious it was seen as something for male pleasure exactly it was a sexual revolution but women were like look men are coercing us into sleeping with them like we need to say no you know it was like using sex like denying sex as a form of power as opposed to saying no we're getting off on it too like we just need men to go down on us, not just fuck us. Like that would solve the problem. But like that wasn't the thinking among mainstream. Interesting, incredible. Another thing I saw that was interesting was that a lesbian shop you talked about, there were no phallic toys. So toys <laughs> couldn't be phallic, which is interesting. Yeah, there were two shops. So the first feminist sex toy store in um, the US, East Garden, had no dildos. She was like anti-dildo, no way, because a dildo was a symbol of the patriarchy, a physical symbol. It was a dick. So if you were saying you hated the patriarchy and then secretly going home and fucking yourself with a dildo, what would, you know, they they saw personal as political, like they were connected, then you were a hypocrite. Um, so it took for her at Eve's Garden for Del Williams, who was um worked for National Organization of Women. For her to allow dildos in there, she actually designed them and worked with a designer to design feminist-style dildos with uh, Gosnell Duncan, who's a paraplegic who was invented the silicone dildo. And so the feminist dildo was pink and purple and um, non-phallic, didn't have, or non, like, 100% looking like a dick with veins, yeah. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Another thing that's interesting as well is... um... You know, at the beginning of the book, you start, you talk, you're in the present day and you talk about some safety issues. So it's really interesting that safety, that's one of our biggest concerns. It hasn't evolved that much, really, considering how many years have gone by. That's yeah, and you quite thought, concerning. 
Yeah. And you probably know more about this than I do. Like, what is the safety of toys now? Like, I don't even, like, would you say most sex toys are safe or? Well, the thing is, there's no testing of, of the materials. And some, some people say, you know, it's body safe silicon, but it has this weird smell. So if it has that kind of new car smell, it's supposed to have lots of, lots of chemicals in it. And if things are flexible, they tend to be more um, toxic. So what I've heard, but I have um, a rabbit vibrator that's transparent made of jelly, which was from maybe 15 years ago, those typical rabbit vibrators that had the pearls inside. And it started to, to disintegrate. It's quite shocking. It's literally fallen off. <laughs> the files. I just keep it just for reference, just to show people not to buy jelly toys because there's still some shops selling jelly toys around. So it's really quite scary. And people don't realize that not every, I mean, I think people should invest a bit more in sex toys, not just go for the cheapest thing because you're putting it on your genitals. And, uh, and also for butt plugs, I think, the, the flared base is not wide enough. There are uh, stories that are in um, the press. Um, there's a couple of stories. I read one from this girl who um, was playing with a butt plug with her boyfriend. And then suddenly they said, where's the butt plug? And then they were looking for it everywhere. And then she lay on her belly and her belly was vibrating or something. And she had to go to A&E. There's a really weird picture of a of a X-ray with this butt plug inside. But it's really good that she actually shared the story because... These flared bases, which are not very big at all, are just too narrow. So I think people need to think about making the, those butt plugs wider, definitely. I had not, this is a part of sex toy safety. Like I knew it had to have a flared base, but I, until now, didn't realize that some of the bases weren't flared enough. And this, I hadn't heard of the story. That is terrifying. I yeah, the, the typical ones with those jewels, I mean, that's not wide enough. You know, the ones that are supposed to have some kind of jewel at the bottom, it's like, no, that's that's just, might look nice, but it's not going to look so good if you go to A&E. <laughs> you know? Oh my God. And what is A&E? Like, um, we the Accident and ER. Emergency ER, sorry. <laughs> okay, no, I was just, I was just clarifying. Is that what they say? And like, you're in Spain right now, right? Yeah, but I'm actually British. So yeah, so it's a good, good that you corrected me because maybe most people who listen to this will probably based in the, in the US. So that's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Um, and you don't, in, in, uh, in Britain, they don't regulate sex toys, right? Like they don't, don't like do the, anywhere. I mean, I think, um, for example, condoms are regulated, but I mean, to, to actually regulate con um, sex toys will make, it will make the procedure or, or the kind of development more expensive and more lengthy. And yeah. I remember being at the um, Aerofame sex toy fair in Hanover. I go every year and there was a, there was a company that was doing safety just to check, you know, nickel, you know, for example, the charging points should not be near the body. That's another thing. Yeah. So, um, and then no, no one was going to this stand. It was incredible. There's this is like company that was, you know, testing sex toys on behalf of companies. No one was interested. <laughs> Everyone's just like, get them out there, sell them. So I guess with all the shame associated, it's very difficult to attribute some kind of issue to a specific toy and the company. It's very difficult to actually get, have any legal problems, I suppose. I guess there are lots of things happening that we don't find out about. Yeah. And I mean, I wrote about this a bit in my book in the history. I mean, there have been dangerous sex toys. There was one that like perforated someone's cervix, like some sort of vibrator. Um, I mean, even going back to, and this was a user error, but going back to like 1919, uh, when there was, uh, when electricity was new, 
um, actually maybe even before this, but some a woman used a plug-in vibrator in the bathtub. Oh, wow. And she uh, died because it, it, she electrocuted herself. And they didn't really have warnings. And people just didn't understand you can't use vibrators in the bathtub back then. Um, and, but later in the 50s, when, and that was back when vibrators weren't openly marketed as sexual. But later in um, time, in the 50s and 60s, there were dangerous vibrators that hurt people. Or I wrote about like dildos made of the same equipment tires were made of that you shouldn't be putting in your vagina. And it smelled awful. And if consumers, if they didn't work, if consumers had a rash from them or some problem, they were too embarrassed, especially because they were like illegal. And in the U.S., they... Sex toys have been illegal in certain areas. Um, there still are technically in Alabama, even where I live in Atlanta. Until 2018, there was a suburb sex toys were illegal. And so when you have this device that has you have the shame, you have the cultural shame of, of it, and then you have it's either illegal or marginally legal, you can get away with selling anything because people aren't going to, you know, march on Washington to say that uh, butt plug you know, went up their ass and into their stomach. I mean, very few people are going to be open about that. Absolutely. For me, personally, I always use uh, condoms for insertable toys all the time. Because I've had, I've had a couple of trips to ER myself. Really? <laughs> Wait, what happened? <laughs> it's quite awful, really. I've never really shared this before, but um, it was from some um, Kegel balls. You know, the Kegel balls are very textured. I'm, I'm really against that. And also some Kegel balls that have holes between the string. Have you seen that? I mean, that, that, they're, some, they're yeah. so dangerous because you can never clean them properly. But basically, I, um, it's happened to me a couple of times, actually, um, where I've, I've had um, this thing called Bartholonitis. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's uh, the Bartholin glands, which are the glands that in the that, that lubricate the vagina. So they got, I got kind of... Um, uh, it got blocked. So one of my labiates got really big and swollen like a cyst. And it was the most painful thing I've ever been through. So, and I, I remember actually the first time it happened to me was the first time I went to the um, sex toy fair in Hanover. And I was looking around thinking, I wish there was some safety in this place. <laughs> you know. Ah. And then two days after when I got back, I remember I went with a company and everyone was like laughing and dancing and getting wasted. And I was on that uh, um, I was just like walking around in kind of pain, a bit like John Wayne. Then when I got back to Spain, two days later, I couldn't walk because it was so bad. I had to get a taxi and go to the doctor and get penicillin. And um, and then they had to kind of like pierce it to get all the pus out. It was a really very, um, and then you've got this cut. It's, it's, it's a very painful experience. And when you go to, when you go to, the, to the loo to, to urinate, you've got that acid on this cut. It's like, oh my God. God, I have to do in the shower. It was just the most painful thing ever. So now I, I even use um, condoms with um, Kegel balls. And also in, I do kind of work on the development design side of toys as well. So I'm, I'm al always making sure that things are as safe as possible. That, let's say smooth surfaces, no, no textures, no, no kind of place where germs can harvest, you know, because it's, it's, really, it's really scary and, and there's no... There's no control over this. And you find out the hard way. Because obviously with 700 toys, it's imagine something's going to happen on the way after all that testing. 
you know. So. Oh my God, that is so scary. And I've never, you know, I've talked to a lot of sex code companies and users. I've never heard of that happening. That's really, that's something, do you know what caused it or in particular? It just could have been some bacterial being inside too long. So I think there's just something that it causes a blockage. So it's a very ambiguous because the body's very, um, wise in that this Bartholinitis occurs when there's something happening that's not quite right in the vagina, but it's happened after using these, um, these, um, keyboard balls. So it was, uh, I probably left them in too long, maybe. Um, so it shouldn't be inside too long, maybe these Kegel balls. And I was like, I thought I was clever, like walking around going shopping and <laughs> keeping them in for a long time and getting a strong pelvic floor. But, um, yeah, for these days I'm doing different things, condom and, uh, yeah, different, different things just to be safe because at least I know it's a it's a new surface area every time, you know. So I yeah, have that peace of mind. Yeah, and they sell these like you know saying, oh, you can go shopping while wearing Kegel balls. I mean, I've seen that marketed that way. You can vacuum, you know. Well, apparently you can't unless you have a condom. Yeah, and also now I've I've done lots of research about Kegel balls and pelvic floor trainers. I don't even recommend them at all because. You're putting your muscles into a constant involuntary um, contraction when you should be contracting and relaxing. That's how you make a, a muscle stronger. So I actually recommend the um, the ones that are app controlled. So they're not weight based. So you can actually get play video games with your vagina. So you're relaxing, contracting. There, there's some really fantastic things around now. So I mean, I'm not really into video games, but I mean, if, if I'm getting my pelvic floor stronger and I'm like killing birds, like going, kuh, kuh, kuh. it's so cool because they do measure the contraction as well, because that's just as important. And that's another reason why I would not recommend yoni eggs. That's another totally different um, sector. But I mean, that, that kind of sector is also coming into the sex toy world, the crystal ones and yoni eggs. And people are saying, oh, yeah, keep it in your vagina all night long to do some healing. It's absolute rubbish. It's so dangerous. And those things could be painted glass from China. You don't really know if it's a real gem. And then there's all the porosity and there's maybe some, some stones are toxic. So it's just like a whole, it's very scary what people are doing. And there's just no control over it. And also the shame and then people not reporting it. And um, who knows what that's going to do to you in, in the long run. Yeah, I need to get that vagina. I am into video games, and I want to play that vagina video game. You have to tell me what oh, it's called. Um, it's called Perifit. It's amazing, and they've got okay. about five different games. And one of them is like you're a big shark going through the uh, under the water, and you have to like eat all these fish. And then and you have there's because what's what it is is that, for example, there are things that come to you, and you have to make sure you're relaxed at that point. So the, the relaxation is just as important as the squeezing. And that's why that's so important. If you speak to anyone who is a physiotherapist who's specialized in the pelvic floor, they will tell you the same thing, that it's just as important to relax, contract, not just like constant involuntary contraction. That's what it's like when you are using weighted balls or yoni eggs and things like that. So it's called Perifit, but I'll send it to you <laughs> after. Yeah. It's P-E-R. I-F-I-T. It's absolutely amazing. It's just, and it's got two sensors, so you can kind of like get, it tells you which one is stronger. And uh, so you've got, you've got double the work there. <laughs> I'm going to have the strongest uh, vagina ever because I'm so motivated by video games. Like I do video game exercise. So yes. They, do they have one for your anus? <laughs> <laughs> Today what? Is there one for the anus? Yeah. 
I don't know. Um, I think obviously, again, I think with the, if, if you make sure it's outside, then maybe you could <laughs> do it that way. But in general, I don't think an anus needs that, that work, but it's still the vagina is kind of like where you would maybe benefit more, but it's all, all the same muscles, really. It's all a whole, yeah. kind of like a hammock holding everything together. Uh, but it's really, really a lot of fun. And also the, what I love about it is you get biofeedback. So over, over time, you can see how you're getting stronger. And you have to do it for about three months, you know, three times a week. And then you can do different programs. For example, there's one for overactive bladder, which is my, my situation. And then other, other ones for like maybe um, postpartum after, after having a baby and other ones for incontinence. So there's all different um, programs that focus on longer squeezes, short, faster squeezes. So it's really, really really interesting and if once you finish one program then you can just do another one and just get super strong and then you can start lifting um I saw this woman who was lifting um cans of beans with her vagina because she had had a few children and she she was having issues like sneezing and peeing and then she decided to get really strong that she was on the British uh TV so you just you never know and I think it's so important because also those muscles help with back pain and um it just it helps with lots and lots of things, hip pain and uh, better orgasms, better grip. <laughs> I want to lift cans of beans with my vagina. <laughs> that sounds like such a great like party trick. <laughs> oh, yeah. And there's a woman actually, I can't remember her name, but she lifts like surfboards. She's got a whole Instagram of her doing vaginal weightlifting. <laughs> That's what it's called, vaginal weightlifting. It's interesting. <laughs> That's incredible. It should be in the Olympics. Oh yeah, <laughs> that might be the next book for you. So, what about what are the, what are the things that surprised you in your research? So, a lot of stuff surprised me. I mean, first off, one of the things that surprised me was how I mean, like we talked about before, how the feminist movement was like, eh, like don't use dildos. They because of the patriarchal stuff, but also because they're not natural. So there'd be things like, oh, you can use a cucumber, which I would not recommend masturbate with. Right. But it was like, it was this anti-technology ethos in the 60s and 70s. It was this counterculture thing. Um, And, you know, dildos were made of plastic and, or, you know, PVC, whatever. Like, so there was this fight against that. And which, I mean, ties into what we're saying about poorly made toys, right? Because there were poorly made toys, but they were arguing that sex should be natural and you shouldn't use any devices. You should be able to just figure it out with your own body and, you know, in your sexual relationships. And it took a really long time for people to accept. I mean, I would say third wave feminists accept sex toys. Would you agree with that? Yeah, probably. But I didn't really, wasn't into them until quite recently. I mean, after watching Sex in the City, The Rabbit. <laughs> that was what yeah, got yeah. me into them. That was them. your thing. Yeah. Was, and that, yeah. It was several years after it happened. But I mean, I think The Rabbit was the big thing. I'm not sure if it's still the the world's biggest selling sex toy, but that was been a, a thing for so long. I mean, um, that was, that's been around a long time before it got to be mainstream, to be honest. I think it, you said it was in the book that it was the 80s or something. Yeah, so Vibratex, like The Rabbit, was such an interesting story because... It's this uh, second generation sex toy uh, entrepreneur. So this woman's um, father actually had a series of sex toy shops in the 60s and 70s in um, the L.A. area. 
and his wife. So her, his, her mom. So this is like Shay, I believe Martin, um, is her last name. Her mother was Japanese and her father was Jewish. Um, I believe he was Jewish. I assume everyone's Jewish cause I'm Jewish, but there were a lot of Jews in the sex toy industry. Um, and the, they went to Japan one day in the 60s and to visit her family. And they saw all these amazing looking vibrators where so much more interesting. Our vibrators were like flesh colored, which meant Caucasian flesh, hard plastic, uh, C batteries, D batteries, crap, crap stuff. I mean, it was okay. It worked, but it wasn't it, nothing. It was smooth, nothing exciting. Um, went there and saw all these vibrators that look like the rabbit, the iconic rabbit everyone knows, but also like the beaver. Um, and there would be like a bird or, and there would be, you know, uh, I think they had like a bear and all these different animals. It was like woodland creatures. And instead of just having a straight vibrator, which is what basically everything in the U.S. was that you would suppose to insert in your vagina, which doesn't, isn't going to give you the kind of orgasm if it's just clitoral. They all had like a little um, clitoral vibrator coming out uh, like the rabbit. So it could give you vaginal and clitoral stimulation. And he decided to import them to the U.S. in the 60s and 70s. And in, um, in Japan at the time, these it was illegal to sell sex toys or make them. So they put little faces on them and called them dolls. And so a lot of these sex toys, even to this day, I sold sex toys in 2005 that had the faces on them. Um, they still imported, uh, yeah, you still get these sex toys with dolls that look like dolls or, or have the faces. And then Shay got, went into the industry herself and she continued to import these. And one of the ones she imported was a vibrator. I mean, sorry, was the rabbit vibrator. That's fantastic. So it's been around for a long time then. Yeah, yeah, it so, has. So after, after your book ends, I guess um, if you did a second edition, you'd have to include all the sucking toys, the womanizer, the satisfier oh and all that. So have you thought about how you would add on to this? Have you thought about how you could... It would be like 10 years, I guess. How long is it since you finished this, writing this book? Uh, it was four years ago. Okay. But things have changed in four years. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it would be a lot of womanizer stuff uh, and the suction dildos, which are, sorry, vibrators, which are innovative um, in and of itself, this air innovative technology but the other thing would be vr porn um that's sex toy enabled which i'm actually thinking of writing an article about uh soon or actually i'm going to but it's like those videos where it shows i mean for the women it would show like a man going down on her and then the toy would go uh would be moving in tune to the uh tongue but usually we think of them as like a blowjob device a flashlight and woman giving a blowjob or fucking through vr um but that's what i'd be talking about i'm actually talking to a vr porn director today because there are doing female uh point of view vr porn because this is my pet peeve with porn is they always say pov porn and it's always a man's perspective 
It's like, I'm like, oh, POV. Oh, look, I see a dick. And yes, I want a dick. It would be fun once in a while, but like, I would also like to see it from one's point of view. So I think that that, um, we're seeing some shifts in porn. And I think this integration between porn and sex toys for women as well is, a, is an interesting thing I would write or am going to write about it. And also the app, the integration of apps. I'm, I'm reviewing yes. a lot of app toys now and it makes my work a lot longer. I mean, I've, I've got to try things manually and with the app and then with distance. There's just so many things now. And, and the, the amount of patterns you can do with two motors, it's just infinite. And you can connect with different people, have video chat. And it's just like incredible, all the things that are, that are possible these days. And also what you're saying about POV just then, it was uh, interesting about the women's perspective. Because I remember, uh, I'm not really into porn at all. Um, it makes me quite uncomfortable. However, a few years ago, when the first cameras came, um, phone cameras came out, I had a boyfriend and we started just recording ourselves. It was like a whole new, I think a lot of people did when they could, could find it was easy to record, you know, naughty things. And when he was recording, having sex and just all, all what he was seeing, I kind of understood porn a bit more, you know, because oh. I thought he, you know, even in missionary, he can see the kind of in, out, in, out motion, shake it all about. Whereas the woman, you're just seeing a guy kind of on top. <laughs> or if you're, doing, if you're doing doggy style, that's a great a visual visual uh, thing for a guy but for we just see the wall you know so I can kind of understand why men are more visual you know? yeah that's interesting I I need to do that experiment that is fascinating um yeah well what's what's interesting about the men being more visual and I'm going to write this as well is actually research shows that women are more turned on by visual stimulation than men but and so this is like one of my arguments because i'm writing my next book on gigolos um like men who have sex with women for money but is that like our culture doesn't allow for the female gaze so a lot of women have sort of repressed that um visual stimulation uh that because they don't our culture doesn't think it's important and it caters to men in the patriarchal culture so I'm hoping uh, I can get that idea out there soon. That's cool. So what do you think about the uh, future of sex toys? Have you got any idea of where things might be going? You mentioned VR. Yeah, I mean, so VR is a thing. VR has always been like the new thing. I've got, I actually have a VR video game uh, thing that I play. And so is that, so this is what one guy I talked to claims who was in the VR space, which was that, we're going to be able to, it'll be like Facebook for, uh, for porn or for, yeah. So Facebook for fucking, and we'll all be able to go in this VR spaces with our app enabled sex toys and have sex with each other. Now, is that what we're going to do on a regular basis? Probably not. Um, but it's like second life, but with VR. Yeah. What? Do you remember a thing called Second Life? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, so it'd be like that, but with VR, that could be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be crazy. I mean, it would be, could be interesting. Um, but I think in the more day-to-day, I mean, you mentioned the app-enabled sex toys, and I mean, those get packed into the things that are connected to the internet. Um, there was a story about a buck plug that, expands and someone hacked into it and it expanded and they couldn't get it out of their asshole like 
Yeah, like John Oliver, who's a comedian in the U.S., said this whole thing about that. Uh, yeah, so there's there's the security issues as well with app-enabled sex toys, which are a little scary. Um, I'm hoping, but I mean, in reality, look, we're always finding new ways to get off. New technology, we're always like hyping up the next big thing. But at the end of the day, I mean, what do I use? I use a Hitachi Magic Wand that's like 50, you know, the design is 50 years old. That's not exactly true. It's been tweaked a bit. But what do we need a thousand patterns? Do we need to have something made of like the newest material? Not necessarily. We need... um, I mean, the womanizers are great innovation, so hopefully we'll have more like that. I do think that uh, in the industry, there's sort of, there's not a lot, a ton of innovation as far as stimulation, like the womanizer, those kind of things have, are, are big innovations, but not, there isn't enough, uh, I don't know, it's, it seems like everyone just thinks they need to connect their bot plug to the internet and boom, call it a day as opposed to maybe making a new design. Well, I think it's interesting that's happened maybe since the pandemic is um, the popularity of panty vibes, wearables. Because oh. also, you know, we know when you're obviously using a Hitachi or, or a wand massage, or I think most of women um, do want to have a continuous strong vibration. So you might have 10 vib- patterns, but you're only using one or two, really. You just want the strongest yeah. continuous. However, when you're using it as a tease, and someone else is controlling it, you don't want continuous. You want to have like a different types yeah. of patterns. It's not about orgasm at all. So I think it's really interesting how, how the pandemic has changed, how we use sex toys. And, and it's not just about the orgasm, but that, that tease and keeping someone on edge and that delicious torture of being in public and uh, someone's controlling you. I think that that's quite interesting. And also a few years ago, I actually, um, I took part in a BBC documentary about sex dolls and sex robots. Mm. This is an industry that's very catered to the male gaze and the male consumer. So they wanted a female who was in it, who's not a doll, you know, just to kind of get some balance. So, uh-huh. they, they, so they brought me this doll, this male doll called Stephen. It's obviously made for a guy because it had like the blowjob mouth. And, um, and it was very heavy. And um, so I had to kind of try it for this documentary. And I just thought, there's no way. I mean, imagine like this really heavy doll. You have to do all the work yourself, whereas women can kind of have the luxury of just lying back and doing nothing <laughs> oftentimes. And I just thought there's no way that it's going to be as popular as the rabbit. But I just do wonder if one day there will be more women, because you can actually hug them as well. And um, it's hard yeah. work. <laughs> That's a really, that's a really good point though, because I have looked into male sex dolls for women and I talked to some manufacturers who said they're too heavy. Like Mm -hmm. people aren't thinking about like women. I mean, even a lot of men can't lift like, like how much does Steven weigh? Oh, I don't know. It was quite heavy. And then I lived in a sixth floor without a lift at the time. And it was so hard for me to get someone to take it out like DHL because I only send one person up. So it was, it was like in this box in the middle of the lounge, like a coffin. It was so creepy. I had to step over it all the time. And this guy, this poor guy came to pick it up and he's like, what's inside? And I said, exercise equipment. Because the um, the company had briefed me to say that's what they say. You know, <laughs> they say a mannequin, you know. <laughs> that is Hilarious. That is crazy. I know they're so, they're too heavy. 
And the design, like, I mean, what woman is going to want to like have sex with something with a blowjob mouth? Like that's not attractive. I think you could design a sex doll with a like um, cunnilingus mouth or something. Oh yeah, like, that'd be nice. Mm. That, that would be really nice. And that has, you know, like if I were designing a sex doll for women, I don't know if Steven, did he have a clitoral stimulator? Well, he had um, a removable dildo. So I just put my own dildo on it. It's oh. like a hole. Because I obviously I didn't know. Because I do lend these things out for trials. Who knows who'd, who had tested it before me and what they did with it. So I just made sure it was my own dildo. And it was a lot smaller than the one that was provided. <laughs> so, oh. so that was interesting. But what was interesting now, and also it's new technology, is the thrusters. You know, those toys that are thrust. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing you could have. But that's the interesting thing about dot tolls. You can actually just remove and, and make them have a clitoral stimulator there's lots of different things and, and also with, with a guy using a doll i think if you're doing missionary that the weight is not such a big deal you know because oh, yeah. they're just lying down but with a woman i think um you know I, I think most women just are not always active in drawing the act of penetration yeah, yeah and i i wouldn't want to have to have this guy you know an 80 pound doll that's not moving with your body like and then you'd have to be on top during it yeah you're right they need to figure out like you'd have to suspend steven from your ceiling or something i don't know i do think that there's there's something there for women like with sex doll because i in not interviewed i'm in some facebook group for uh sex toy people and this one woman who owns a store in Florida said an elderly woman during the pandemic bought a male sex doll for sex and companionship because she was like living alone. And I think that's pretty cool. Like I know elderly people buy those things that look like seals that they can pet. Have you okay. heard of that? <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah. So, I mean, I think companion sex dolls for elderly people because they're still horny. We have this idea that older people don't want to have sex. Um, and maybe they can talk to and, you know, so yeah, there's, a, there's a bunch of different places. I would love to see that industry, like a um, brothel for women with sex dolls and humans, like that would be nice. There's actually, a, there was a brothel for dolls in, in Barcelona, actually, um, a few years ago. I think it's closed down now, but they had to pay a deposit just in case you know, before they, uh, they used the doll and they were cleaned obviously between sessions. It was a very kind of, um, I, I thought it was quite a frivolous topic when I agreed to do this, uh, to, to do this into this um, documentary, but then there's also a dark side to it. Like people are kind of normalizing abuse or rape oh, or like yeah. putting it or, you know, this, you just don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but going back to the female sexual consumer. So now you're working with um, on, on a product, a book with about gigolos. Is that, is that correct? Yes, it sure is. So tell me about um, that. What, what inspired you to research this topic? Well, what inspired me was I was living in Berlin, like actually finishing up this book in 2017 and sex uh, work was legal, is legal there. And it was like, oh, great. Like, what is there for women? Because there was like a brothel down the street and there were um, strip clubs everywhere and you could just hire anybody. And there was so little like sex like men to hire for women very very little and there were things like rub and tugs for women like which is you know rub and tugs no it's like a massage where they give you a hand job 
Okay, they have a tantric massage. They have that in Barcelona, but usually women giving the massage is actually... Yeah. There are some men as well, but it's usually like a woman fulfilling a bisexual fantasy kind of thing. Exactly. And that's the same in... um in most places, but they had men for women. So I actually hired a man. I did a Tantra massage and I really enjoyed it. And that was part of what spurred the book, which was like, okay, like I paid for sex. I paid for a hand job. It was great. This stranger gave me an orgasm. Wow. Like my clitoris, my whole system down there, it's very hard to figure out. You have to be like a 33 degree angle and do this. You know, I'm like, how did he figure it all out? That's, incredible this should be available for all women and what's the history of this and so that's what kind of spurred me oh my god the history is crazy um and there's gigolos were huge in the early 1910s people who paid uh, men that women paid to dance with them and then dancing and dancing with tango sometimes led to sex and these were an accepted thing and i'm like well why Aren't there gigolos today? I mean, there are a few, but there was supposed to be a brothel in Nevada started by Heidi Fleiss in 2005, the stud farm. And that never took off. Um, we, we've had very few legal male escorts in the U.S. I can count three. We have one now in Nevada. He's a trans guy. Um, but yeah, this, I, I think that uh, gigolos can be a feminist thing for women. And I'm really hoping, uh, yeah. So anyway, this, this is what spurred my book. Oh, it's interesting, interesting topic. So a couple of quick questions. What's the book that changed your life? What's of the book that changed my life? Oh my God, so many books did. Um, I would have to say, <laughs> I don't want to be pretentious and I'm actually looking at, a book that was one of the most important books in my life, which was like Swan's Way by Proust. Um, What's it called, sorry? Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Okay. Uh, And that changed my life uh, in part because I realized a fiction book could not really have a strong plot and could be just about... um, a person's inner life and that inner life could drive a narrative. And that was a really big deal to me. But another thing that changed my life was, and this isn't a book, it's really a poet, Gregory Corso, who's a beat poet and, and Jim Carroll. And they wrote poems about genitals and about sex. And they were considered part of the literary canon. And that made me realize oh, I can write about sex and be taken seriously. And so those are the kind of things that changed my life. Fantastic. Do you have a quote or affirmation that you live by or a life philosophy? Well, I do have a life philosophy. And this is, uh, I don't have a quote, but so my best friend died of cancer at age 36 last month. Wow. Um, Allison Murray. And uh, she had stage four cancer for three years um and seeing her deal with that and be so brave and keeping positive that changed my life and so that made me realize I so my philosophy now is live every day like you have stage four cancer um you know don't take 
a minute, like do everything you want to do. Don't take a minute for granted if you're healthy. Um, and it doesn't really, nothing matters about like what you, you know, what other people think of you or what you should, you know, what society thinks of you, like, because we all could like get cancer and die. That's like really dark, but so we have to just take joy in whatever and live our lives because life is so unexpected. So she really taught me that. And that's been my life philosophy. And I, of course, I wish this is not, I do not want to learn this this way. I want, to, I want Allison to still be here and she's not. And life sucks because of that. But that's been my philosophy. That's interesting. It's definitely uh, something I definitely agree with. And uh, it sounds like a cliche, but you have to live like that. Definitely. I saw something recently on um, Instagram called the 4K Weeks. Have you heard of it? It's basically a poster. And when you buy it, um, you put your date of birth. So it tells you how many weeks you've been alive. they're, They're literally crossed off and it looks like a tally chart. It's very scary. It can be quite morbid or it can just be a wake up call, depending on how you look at it. But it's really kind of like, look how much time you've got left and trying to help you kind of like really think how you want to spend your time and energy. It's really interesting. Yeah, that is so interesting. Yeah, because we rarely think like I've learned through Allison having cancer, like death is as scary to talk about as sex for a lot of people. Mm. And so I'm trying to talk more openly about that as well. And speaking of what other people think, there's a part of your book that kind of made me cry when I read it. I'm going to have to read it out. You say, finally, thanks to everybody in the sex toy industry who was willing to withstand personal criticism in order to follow their dreams of making the world a better place. That's something I can really resonate with because um, some people think that sex toys are frivolous or scandalous or both. Whereas there is a massive cause behind it. You know, it's about female pleasure and uh, orgasmic independence, which for me anyway, influenced my emotional life. It meant I wasn't reliant on toxic sex with no great sex with toxic men, (laughs) which is kind of like why I I bought my first vibrator. But it's a really great thing to to read. I think uh, if you encountered some judgment around being in this industry, yeah. And I mean that, uh, thank you for saying that. I'm glad that touched you. Like I actually was like crying a little bit when I wrote that. Um, it was like emotional for me because I had, uh, a lot of pushback, uh, like from my thesis advisor at um, university. Well, no, actually he was nice, but he initially said like, don't do this. Like wait until you get tenure. <laughs> and controversial. Don't write about history of sex toys. And I was like, well, I probably will never get tenure because of the way academia is. And Chili's Bar and Grill said they would always hire me back, which was a restaurant I was waiting tables at. And so I'm like, I'm like, look, that's my backup plan. And I'm going to write about this. And who gives a shit? Like, <laughs> and um, but because like he was very laid back and he's like, okay, like he was fine. I mean, but a lot of people won't push back against that, right? Like they, you know, someone, an older white man tells them don't do this and they listen I mean, I luckily had a dad who I could push around who, if he told me not to do something, I'd be like, no, dad, you're stupid. So like I had a good, I had a very laid back dad who was a model for that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, there was a pushback. Another person on my dissertation committee, and this is for, you know, my dissertation that became Buzz, he said, uh, he's like, I want to speak to you after my dissertation defense. And I thought he was going to say good things because I thought it went well. Um, and I came to his office and he said, well, Hallie, you said that sex toys um, are for liberated women. 
well, none of my girlfriends ever use sex toys. So that can't be true. And that was it. That was his comment on all my research and my years of research and all this. And I came home from hearing that and I cried. And I remember telling Allison, actually, who just died. I said, I'm crying. He said these things to me. He, she's like, let's unpack this. Um, all he, he didn't mention anything about your research. He just said, he mentioned his own girlfriend. A, he's an egotist. And B, he is not critiquing you. He, it's just about his personal experience, his insecurities. Um, so there's a lot of vastness stuff, which was disturbing, like from men. There were also a second wave feminist woman on my, um, during my defense who said, well, is it even worth studying sex toys? Are they a worthy subject of study? And I pushed back against, I said, well, you know, people write uh, whole academic books on the pencil and no one's complaining about them. And then she shut up. So there is this kind of sense of having to be, you don't have to be aggressive, but it helps um, because there is pushback. Women's sexuality is always viewed as frivolous or has been, and men's sexuality is necessary for the continuance of the species. So that's why Viagra is marketed everywhere. And the minute like we have a vibrator advertisement somewhere, people freak out and say, oh my God, it's salacious. So this kind of double standard still exists and we still need to fight against it. Definitely. Fantastic. So where can people find you? Um, on Twitter, uh, Hallie Lieberman is my Twitter handle. It's my Instagram handle. Uh, I have a website, um, but yeah, and I write articles for a lot of different publications. So I'm always writing. Um, I write a lot for Button Speed News, but I've written for New York Times, Washington Post, lots of places. Fantastic. Well, Hallie Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting talking about sex toys, my favorite subject. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was fascinating. Thank you so much. The book I'm reading now is Calling in the One by Catherine Woodward Thomas. It's actually called Calling in the One, Seven Weeks to Attract the Love of Your Life. And why am I reading this book? Well, one of my friends who's in the sex book club that I'm a part of, she told me about it. And she told me that many people met the love of their life after reading this book, including her. So I thought, oh my God, I want to read that. Because about two months ago, I broke up with someone and I'm kind of in that stage where um, I'm thinking about Mr. Next. <laughs> it's a bit strange, but I remember in the past when I broke up with someone and then thinking about the next person who was in my life. Um, for example, after you've had, let's say, relationship sex for so long and then you have casual sex, it just feels for me anyway, as I remember it, to be quite cold. And I'm just not into that kind of situation right now. I'm not, I'm not the kind of open to any casual encounters. So I would like to have sex because I'm dying to have sex, but I don't want to have a casual encounter. I'd like something a bit more meaningful. So that, that makes me think that calling in the one might be a good idea for me. It's not just about sex. I do also crave 
intimacy, support, and all the all the good things that relationships can provide. And this book is very inspiring to me. And also the author, Catherine Woodward Thomas, is a very inspiring person. I actually watched a talk she gave about this book. I think it was a Mind Valley talk where she shared her own story. And I think she might be in her 60s now, but when she was 41 or something, she was single and child-free. And obviously 20 years ago, being 41 single and child-free was a lot older than it is today. So, and also dating opportunities were not the same back then as they as they are now. Well, dating as in it wasn't so easy. Well, maybe dating is not the right word now, but like, there are lots of hookup opportunities right now, many ways to meet people. But back then, internet dating was a bit, um, let's say, a bit limited, I would, I would say, or maybe not so, not so normal, not so popular, perhaps is the right word. Anyway, she shared her story about all the things she did to call in the one. And I just thought, oh my God, that's so inspiring. So anyway, she shares her own story in this book. And she's also the same author who wrote the book, Conscious Uncoupling. And that was the phrase that was made very famous by Gwyneth Paltrow when she went through her divorce. So actually a few years, or maybe I think it was 10 years after she called in the one, the, the author that is, she actually got divorced, but in a very amicable way. So hence the name Conscious Uncoupling. So anyway, what really attracted me to this book as well is that when I was doing my research, I saw thousands and thousands of reviews on Amazon, which were very favorable and lots of people sharing their experience reading the book, saying that they actually did read or did read, did find the one before they finished the book. So I thought, hmm, let me try it for myself. So it's actually a course and there are there are lessons for every day and it takes, it's 49 days and it's recommended to actually follow that rhythm and not go, not go too fast. And I think it said, I'm not sure if I'm imagining this, but not to go on a date during that time. It's literally, it's really kind of a self-love process and um, it's kind of like a, a growth process as well. And it's really centered on yourself. It's not so much about, let's say, dating skills or how to meet people. Well, there are there are some practical exercises in it, exercises in it. And every day there is a theme and there is a, a special task that's part of the of the process of calling in the one. I'm only on day five, but already I'm kind of like looking forward to reading it every morning with my morning coffee on the sofa and I'm doing all the exercises. And one of the exercises, which was I think day three, if I remember correctly, was to actually identify all the reasons or why you are responsible for your own situation. Because I think sometimes we tend to blame others or circumstances for our own situations, when in actual fact, we should be taking more responsibility and being accountable. And for example, you see it lots of times when people go on dates and they're always blaming the other person, he wasn't this, he wasn't that, when actually what are you? You know, you have to really look at yourself and be the best version of yourself. And that's a massive cliche, but it's so true. Anyway, I was thinking about my own motives of uh, why I am single. And um, maybe I'll do another one about child freedom soon. But anyway, I actually um, wrote down my own methods or methods, sorry, motives of, for being single and actually shared it on Instagram the day, which had a big reaction. So I'm going to read to you what my motives were. I haven't been open to relationships or love, which is so true. I've been so closed off to it and thinking this is not for me. 
And another one, I'm afraid of getting hurt. I guess that's quite true as well. I think, um, yeah, like I kind of like I've got this protective barrier around me. Another one, I haven't been emotionally available. Yes, I've really been not been looking for love um, at all. I've just been thinking that maybe the kind of traditional relationship, etc., is just not available for me. So I've been totally closed off. But going, going on to another, um, a more positive motive, one is I enjoy my freedom. I totally do. And another one, I have unresolved attachment issues. Now that's a big topic. Um, I've been working on that with a therapist and I do think I'm getting better, but I do have a kind of avoidant attachment style. So I I tend to, well, obviously I'm a commitment phobe, so I do kind of stay away um, from relationships and even friendships. I keep people at arm's length a lot of the time even though I'm kind of craving the intimacy. So it seems to be a massive contradiction. So I have to really, really work on that. And then I think relationships are complicated and I enjoy living a simple, peaceful life. Well, I do believe that every relationship kind of mirrors who you are and where you're at in your life. And I know that years ago when I was more, let's say, more high maintenance, I was a high maintenance person expecting perfection from those around me when I start, I didn't really take the time to look at myself and why I wasn't, wasn't perfect. But I do think um, relationships are a bit of a, well, they were for me in the past anyway, a bit of a roller coaster. Whereas I do love to be just calm and I want to have passion as well, but I do like to be peaceful and calm and not have this extra set of worries or, or yeah, just worries, I suppose. And another, another reason, I haven't met anyone that I want to be with. Which, which is so true. I haven't met and I even really know what kind of person I want to be with now, to be honest. But I don't think it's about thinking about what the right person is. I think you'll just feel it and know it when it when it happens. Um, obviously, I want to have something in common with them, but um, I have such a massive range of interests, but it's going to be pretty impossible, I would imagine, to to meet someone who's exactly into everything I'm into. But it also, you also want someone who's actually going to help you learn and, and know things that you don't. And you, so you can actually complement each other, each other rather than being completely similar. And also I like my own company. I really do. I do love spending time alone. I'm quite, I'm quite a Zen just living on my own as well. I mean, um, someone actually wrote that had lots of comments to this post and someone wrote it's how lonely it was to come home every night. And I think, and I love it. I absolutely, absolutely love it. I do think it's so important to actually be full of yourself in the nicest possible way before you add someone to the mix. If you're going to be with a rela- in a relationship because you feel lonely at night, I don't think that's the, the right motive. And last but not least, I think that relying on someone, someone else too much, either emotionally or financially is risky. That's something that I've always believed. Um, I think that in, in society in general, there's too much economic dependence in relationships. And that means that relationships have no longer become about desire or choice. It's about you've got no option. And that's something that really scares me. I've always been, I've always believed that I should be financially independent. And I prefer the kind of like living apart together arrangements. I don't really need a guy to pay for my lifestyle, even though I'll happily, you know, accept some free uh, vegan dinners, no problem. But I, I need to have my own financial independence because in the end of the day, it does, it, financial independence just, just it means so much. And also several years ago, I did read in a 
British newspaper that 59% of married women would get divorced if they could afford it. And I thought that was an incredibly scary statistic. And for me, I guess I am deep down, I actually am a romantic and I want to choose my relationship. I don't want to be it to be my only, my only option because I've got nowhere else to go. And sadly, that's how many relationships end up when you actually get your finances together. Then you've got a couple of kids, you've been out of the work market. I just think, oh my God. I mean, for some people, like, it works out really well. But for me, I just think that's massive risk. Really, And I'm, I wouldn't really be prepared to, to kind of um, let go of my independence that much. I don't think so anyway. I haven't been inspired to. It's definitely not something that's ever been on my wish list. But I do believe that there are many, many ways to have relationships. It's just about finding the right person and the right time and just about coinciding in everything you want. So anyway, I'm on day five of this process in this book and I am looking forward to the rest of it, 44 days to go. So let's see if I do call in the one in that time. Wish me luck. Now it's time to slow things down as we prepare for this episode's guided affirmations meditation. It's probably not a good idea to listen to this while driving or operating machinery. Instead, take a break from whatever you're doing, get comfortable, Take a deep breath and enjoy. I am an orgasmic woman. Thank you for my orgasms. I enjoy my orgasms when shared and when I'm alone, I accept my orgasmic power. I can give my body pleasure. My body is capable of experiencing sexual pleasure. I enjoy my body. I am grateful for the gift of orgasm. I am an orgasmic woman. Thank you for my orgasms. I am able to relax and become aroused. I embrace my sexual energy. I am proud of my sexuality. I am grateful for the gift of sensuality. I make the effort to discover my sexual tastes. I am grateful for the gift of orgasm. An orgasmic woman. Thank you for my orgasms. I am grateful for the many benefits of orgasm. I appreciate the feeling of well being and relaxation that follows. 
To find out more about me and my orgasmic lifestyle, visit venusohara.org or follow me on Instagram at instagram.com slash venusohara. Make sure to search for the Orgasmic Lifestyle Podcast by Venus O'Hara in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening. Have an orgasmic week and make sure every day is a climax.